Well, it can be very impactful to learn that somebody has been praying for you. I kind of alluded to that in the newsletter this week if you read it. But many of you have probably experienced that. On uh, Chances are, many of you have experienced it both on the giving and the receiving end of that. To have been told somebody was praying for you or to tell somebody you're praying for them. And it's especially meaningful when those prayers are specific and in whatever way it's communicated, you know it's coming from a, a, a sincere, earnest place. Maybe because of the person who shared it. You know that person is a prayer. And you know and they pray with authority. You have the sense that when they, when they go before the Lord and ask something, that he's listening. They've got his attention somehow. And so maybe it's especially meaningful coming from somebody like that, but just maybe in the way it's conveyed. You know it's coming from an earnest place, and you know those prayers are specific. So, for example, you may at some point have written or received a note that says something like some of the things I even prayed in our pastoral prayer just minutes ago, but something like this. I want you to know I've been praying for you. You've been on my mind ever since I heard about your situation, whatever the situation is. I've been praying for you. I can't imagine how difficult this must be for you. But I'm so thankful for your steadfastness and perseverance, your example of walking by faith through adversity is a real inspiration to me. And so I'm asking God to give you strength that you don't have naturally. I'm asking him to grant you a peace that passes all understanding. I'm asking that he'll provide every need of yours so that you'll be assured not only when he does it, but in how he does it, that you will be assured that he is your God who loves you with a personal love and so that you'll know that he is enough. Now, that's just a for instance, and maybe, again, you've written a note like that, made a call to somebody like that, a text of some sort, or maybe you've received a note like that. There's something that can be really impactful when somebody shares that sort of message with you. I'm not just, hey, I want you to know I've been praying for you. That's actually encouraging too. And don't, uh, don't, don't fail to say so, especially if you're praying for me. You, we, you can feel free. Uh, they'll, they'll, those words will never be wasted on me. And your prayers will never be wasted on me e, uh, either. But especially when it's a little bit more specific personal enough to know you, it's coming from an earnest place. Well, that in some sense is what we read in the second half of Ephesians chapter 1. That Paul in this letter to the church at Ephesus essentially includes a note that says, here's how I've been praying for you. The prayer of an apostle, it's a prayer that really offers us a model of sorts that we could follow in praying for ourselves and for one another. Jesus, of course, gave us what, what really we call the model prayer, the Lord's prayer that we pray in exactly the words he's given us. But there's a, a sense in which this prayer of the Apostle Paul provides a really good model for us to pray 
for the church, for one another, but, but I say for ourselves too because it is just a good uh, discipline of our own hearts to pray for ourselves what we would ask God to do in other people as well. I'll come uh, to more of that in a moment. But that prayer that Paul prays begins with a commendation. So I want to outline here for you some of what we see, um, again, probably in uh, more briefly than uh, any, any one of these sections could be uh, unpacked. But it begins with a, with a commendation in verses 15 and 16. He actually begins with a, for this reason. And this is always important when, when, you, when, when he starts with, or when, when the writer starts with a therefore or for this reason, that you look back and see what is it that he's speaking of. And, and when he begins this prayer, I'm, for this reason, all that he has just said in verses 1 through 14, but we spent a couple of weeks um, studying and examining, but he just has, has unfolded this overwhelming list of the lavish blessings that God has poured out to his people. You remember that, right? A blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. He's predestined us for adoption of Jesus Christ by Jesus Christ to himself. He has uh, redeemed us, forgiven us. He's given us an inheritance. He's given us a seal, a down payment in the way of the Holy Spirit. Just this this drinking out of the fire hydrant sort of list of blessings that God um, has poured out to his people here. And for this reason, I pray for you. This is, this is basically how the prayer unfolds. Because I heard of your faith and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Commendation. I, I, um, I was thinking of the fact that uh, on school accreditation visits, which I've participated in on both sides of those, um, re- receiving an accreditation team and also going and being a part of an accreditation team, where you are really, it's a part of a school improvement process. The product of that is you know, how can we become a better school? But those reports always have commendations. Let us tell you as your peers coming in to visit your school, let us tell you the praiseworthy things we see about your school. Before we tell you what what we see that could be improved, we want to tell you what there is commendable to to praise uh, you about and for you to praise God about in in a Christian school setting. Well, that's a good, again, again, a good habit of heart that we would come in our prayers for ourselves, but particularly our prayers for one another, that we would begin with commendation. I thank God for you, Paul says. I do not cease to give thanks for you. I think I shared some time ago um, that it has become our pattern of prayer in our staff meetings weekly to to, to sort of follow this, this pattern, that we begin by thanking God for this church. 
In fact, I'll, I'll often say as we begin our staff meeting, what are you thankful for about Myrtle Grove this week? We want to begin by thanking God for the church we have, lest we complain about the church we don't have. Right? You, you, are you capable of that? Not that there's anything to complain about here. You know I wouldn't, and I know you wouldn't, but you know some people <laughs> at other churches, right? So, but this is really, this is really true. Where, where our heart will default to go is complaining about what we don't have. And we'll find ourselves constantly praying for what we don't have. And by the way, what we need and what we lack, we want to bring to God in prayer. But it is just a good habit of heart to begin by thanking God for even the church fellowship we're a part of. And this particular prayer is a prayer for the church. Commending one another for those praiseworthy things we see in one another and thanking God for the things that he has done in our hearts and in our lives. Commendation, that's how that, how to pray like an apostle, begin with commendation. Begin with commendation. Thank God for the people he's brought you into fellowship with because you will never be part of a perfect church. And so thank God for the imperfect one he's given you. Second, this apostolic prayer includes a, a request, and I would, I thought about different ways of heading this, um, but it is, I, I might say more specifically, it's, it's asking God for something only God can do. It's asking God for what only he can give, and that becomes really the meat of, uh, of this whole prayer is in verses 17 through 18 where he says, his prayer is that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I, I thought about three or four different titles for this sermon. One of them could have been, Open the Eyes of My Heart. That song that we opened the service with actually was inspired by this passage. In fact, if you're reading the NIV, it says something along those lines. Uh, I might not say open the eyes of our heart, but, uh, but uh, enlightening the eyes of our heart. I think it uses that language. I pray that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That he would flip the light on in your understanding. And again, let's appreciate why he prays this because he's just said, he's just, he's just outlined this litany of blessings God has given. He's spelled them out. He has named them. I think I may have mentioned this was uh, verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1 was one of the passages I had to memorize when I was in seminary. I know it well. I could name that list of blessings. And so could the Ephesians perhaps, or at least they could have read them. But, but what Paul basically says is, I pray that you will get it because you don't, and neither do I. I pray for this reason, because he has so lavished his grace upon you, I pray that he would, he would turn the light on in the eyes of your understanding so that you would get it, so that you would really 
know. That you would know in a way that a class can't teach you, that a, that a handbook can't teach you, a study guide can't teach you, you can't, flashcards won't help, you can't memorize your way through it. There is a deeper knowing that he has for us that only he can provide for us. And so, and so Paul's prayer, as I pray, I pray that he would give that to you, that you'll get it. Asking him for something only he can give. And I would say that enlightened is maybe the key word here, illuminated. Because this is not about, he's not praying for new information about God. And the way the word revelation is used in some uh, circles in the church, there, there's, it comes with almost this, uh, this idea that, yeah, we can read the Bible, but there's, there's just knowledge about God that, you know, he's got, to, he's got to give us by revelation. And it can become very misleading and lead you very askew because what, what he does is not just uh, give us new information outside the Scripture, but just shines a light on what he's already revealed in Scripture that we understand in a way we just couldn't know without his illumination. He's already outlined the facts, as it were, in the first 14 verses. He's told us what's true in plain black and white. It's just, we don't really get it. And so he's praying, I, I pray God will turn the light on in your understanding so that you'll really get it. I, I, I think it's, uh, there's at least an analogy that may help here. When we think about knowing something in a deeper way that we just, we've been told we could repeat it, we could say what's true, but we just never really understand it. I, I've had a couple of conversations in recent months anyway about the experience parents have, maybe mothers and fathers have when they give birth to a newborn baby. And suddenly have a love that they never had before they never imagined having. They couldn't, they, there's no way that they could know what that was going to be like until they had a child. And instantly, they loved this little creature in a way they couldn't fathom before. If you know what I'm talking about, say amen. Amen. Happy Mother's Day. And then, you know, maybe when having a second child, this was our, our experience was like, we were, we just didn't know how a second one was going to get loved enough. You know, we loved our first child so much, we just weren't sure we had enough love to give to a second one. And couldn't imagine splitting it in half, you know, dividing that in two. Only to discover there was a whole new measure of it, Right? And part of what came along with that, and the conversation that I've had recently, was for Christian parents, this happens over and over again, where suddenly there is, in a manner of speaking, a revelation of the love of the Father. 
There's, there's a, a, an illumination of the, tr- of the truth, what, what, the, what the, the love the Father has toward us that we've known about, we've talked about all of our lives growing up, if we grew up in Sunday school, about God as Father and how our Father loves us and this kind of thing. But until uh, we became parents, we never really knew what the love of a father was like. And now, in some small measure, we know. So I might say that's the sort of thing that Paul is praying for for the church. It's not new information. It's not new facts. It is just a deeper understanding that comes just by way of his spirit illuminating truths that have already been revealed. Paul's asking God to provide something that only he can provide, that there's no substitute for. That's the request. And that's a good one to make for one another. As we pray for our church, as we pray for those people we're in fellowship with in our small groups and uh, in other contexts, that we would pray he would give what only he can give. And then the third aspect of this prayer as we just consider it as a model of how to pray like an apostle, would be the results in view. That he, that he begins with a commendation, he makes a request, but he actually prays with results in view. You, you have heard the phrase, begin with the end in mind. That's a good practice in all kinds of applications. But he actually prays here with certain results in mind. This is, this is actually very, very instructive. And I'll say again, having I've read this passage, loved this passage, I've memorized this passage, um, and yet there was something that grabbed my heart in a fresh way about it this week as I was preparing this message. And it's this specifically, the way that he prays with eternal results in mind. He's praying about things that God will do things that last, things that matter. The way we pray for ourselves and for one another very often is God give them more comforts, remove their pains, difficulties, distresses, right? Those are not bad things to pray, but we pray for them as if those are ends to themselves. God provide this job because he wants this job. Meet this need because it's what he needs. As if that's an end to himself. Look at the way Paul prays. I pray God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding be enlightened so that you may know the hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance, the greatness of his power. I, I pray for things uh, that really matter. I pray, I pray that he would open the eyes of your understanding so that you will see what really matters and its eternal things. The hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance, the greatness of his power. I, I think it's striking and instructive 
uh, this was one of the things that really grabbed my attention in a fresh way. But in Christ, these believers have hope and riches and power. And listen, in this world, they had none of that. This is really just very instructive to me, that Paul prays that they would see that in Christ they have the very things they have none of on this earth, and most of them would never have. These are people who, who most Christians in the first, second century, uh, better part of the third century, um, more often than not as well. They had no status. They had very little money. It was it was poor. Um, oppressed people in many cases. And for most of them, they had no hope on this earth. There was, there was no hope that it was going to get any better. You get what I'm saying? And this is a place, see, like, I, we have a hard time even getting our minds there because we've actually got it so good. Like we, we have a hard time receiving this prayer the way first century Christians probably would have because we actually live a pretty comfortable life. And there are things we can hope in, and we do have a measure of riches. We even have a measure of power, at least collectively, as a voting people and so forth. We have influence. He's praying for people who had none of that and, and no hope of, of coming by it on this earth in most cases. But in Christ, they have real, eternal hope. Part of the attractiveness the fragrance of the gospel to those early Christians was the fact that it offered them hope. Just any kind of hope. Not only as just poor people would they lack it, but in the pagan world, there was no, there, they didn't believe in any kind of gods that would offer them any hope. At, at the end of the day, it was just a roll of the dice what was going to happen beyond death for them. Real hope, eternal hope, real riches of their, of their inheritance. He has said uh, among the things that he listed, among the blessings he listed in those first 14 verses was uh, that, that in him you've obtained an inheritance. People with no connection, no status, no rich uncles, I mean, there's nobody in their lives that they're hoping is going to uh, name them in their will. That there's any inheritance coming their way. They, there's nobody. And see, there, there are probably some people here today that in some measure that's really the life you've known. That, that your, family, your family connections have not bought you any favors It's not bought you any honor, but if anything, dishonor. That you haven't, li you know, that you didn't grow up living with any sense of an inheritance, but maybe instead some sense of just rejection, not only by your own family, but by other people who knew and disdained your family. There's probably somebody in here that resonates with. It certainly resonated with the 
uh, Ephesian Christians, many, probably most of them, there's no, no inheritance even in their mindset. But he says, you have one in Christ, and I pray that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that you would know the riches of his inheritance. Do you, do you hear that prayer? I, I pray it for myself sometimes. God, would you give, help me to know what it is, to lay hold of really what it is that you're saying here. I can, I can list them. Help me really understand. It's sort of like that, uh, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I know, but help me with what I don't really know. That's kind of the prayer here. His hope, riches, and power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. The same power that seated him in the heavenly places, as we read at the conclusion of that, far above all rule and authority the power by which he put all things under his feet and made him his head over all things to the church. I was talking to somebody this morning about the fact that uh, that by itself, all of the, the descriptions of the kind of power, that's a sermon right by itself. And it's almost written like, it's not an afterthought necessarily, but he's just, he's just describing the kind of power that is available to us. And it's mind-blowing. And it's why I'll have to come back to that. Aren't you glad to know? I'm not getting ready to start the whole other sermon that comes along with that. But it actually does fold right into chapter 2 as well. But for powerless people, there is power not only awaiting us eternally in some distant future, but in a way that is hard to get our minds around. A power that is, that is Christ right now. He is seated right now above all rule and authority in the heavenly places. All things have been put under his feet right now. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. I'm about to knock stuff over up here talking about it. You know, right now, he reigns. And what it's going to go on to say in chapter 2 is in some way that is mind-blowing. That we're seated with him even right now. That we're in him. That we are somehow participating with him in that rule and in that exercise of power and authority. Do you have a sense of what you don't know yet? Right? Right? Like, I hear you. I can repeat it back to you. I can't really get my mind around that sort of power that is ours in Christ Jesus. But that's, that's the prayer. That's the apostles' prayer. I pray that God would give you an understanding. You can't come by by studying. You can't come by by sitting around talking with one another about. You can only come by by a, a, a gracious gift from God by His Spirit to deepen our knowledge of Him, that you may know Him better. But what if we began to pray for one another this way? What if this really was a model 
that we used in praying for our church. For one another, personally, again, for our people in our small group, or just for our church collectively. What if we thanked God before we asked Him to fix things or people? What if we prayed for God to do it in us before we asked him to do it in them. It would take a while before we got around to praying for them, I suspect. What if we prayed when we saw the things lacking in other people, again, as the church corporately in just the Christian community outside of even a local church. What if we prayed for God to give insight? God, show them what they don't see. Help them understand what they don't understand. What if we prayed that way instead of complaining about their lack of insight? Oh, what if we prayed for God to give it instead of trying to pound it into their heads? Because that ain't going to get it there. That's part of the reason of pointing out that he's he's asking for God to provide what only God can provide. It will not come by cajoling or persuasion or bullying or nagging, but only by the power of God. What if we began to pray for our church and the church like an apostle? What if, in answer to that prayer, we came by a deeper understanding of the hope to which we're called, the riches of his inheritance for us and the exceeding greatness of his power toward us. What if we prayed like an apostle? Let's pray now together. Well, God, we do make it our prayer that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding. We recognize, we, we know, w- without it even being a, uh, a confession or something to feel uh, sorry for or guilty about, we just know there are things that we really don't understand about how great you are, about how good you are, and about how deep your love is toward us and how innumerable and wonderful are the blessings that you've secured for us. But we want to know. We want to know. So God, we do pray that this morning for our church, and we pray that you would begin to just reorient our hearts to pray for one another the way 
the Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesian church without ceasing. And we do so with the expectation that you are willing to answer that prayer. (laughs) And that as we have the eyes of our understanding enlightened about who you really are and what we really have in Jesus, that we will be transformed by it. And not only as individuals, as a church, as a whole community of faith globally, and by that, perhaps, the whole planet might be transformed. Lord, would you do in us what only you're able to do? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.